It is a good morning. Yes, indeed. My name is Bud Brainerd. I'm one of the pastors here at Lake Forest Davidson. We're glad that you're here with us today. Lake Forest Davidson is a community where some people are cautious about Jesus in the church. Some people are curious about Jesus in the church, and some people are fully committed. doesn't really matter where you are on that spectrum. There's a place for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. As long as you don't have it all together, you're going to fit right in with the rest of us. So uh, before we begin this morning, uh, I just want to share with you that um, pastors can be put in their place. Um, I got a text from my 12-year-old granddaughter on, July, on June 28th, and uh, here's what Madeline had to say. Hi, Pop Pop. I like that. She calls me Pop Pop. Hi, Pop Pop. So I'm doing vacation Bible school this summer, and I'm a counselor, and I have homework, and it asks, who did the people say Jesus was? And I'm not sure you can help me. <laughs> well, we'll just have to wait and see how this morning goes, and then uh, we'll, we'll see what, uh, what happens with that. But uh, I love my granddaughter, and, uh, and grandchildren have a way of reminding us that we all put our pants on the same way. So, with every passing year, I have a growing appreciation for old things. Now, old people, and I know that sounds a little self-serving, but uh, old people, I have a growing appreciation for old music, for old movies, for old literature. And what I'm hoping is that this, this series on the book of Proverbs is helping you grow to appreciate the Old Testament, because it's really important. There's a lot of, lot of good stuff in there. Uh, Proverbs has 31 chapters. You've heard this before, which means that if you read a chapter a day, now that's going to take you all of about 10 minutes. So it's a huge commitment of time. 10 minutes, you read a chapter a day, and in a month, at least most months, you'll get all the way through the book. So it's really an easy read. Now, there is a, a word of warning before you start. When you start reading Proverbs, if it's your first time, you're going to think that Solomon was the first diagnosable case of ADD because he just jumps around a lot. He changes topics so fast, it'll make your head spin. But it's well worth the read. What you will find as you go through it is you'll begin to hear uh, repeating themes. And that's really what the sermon series is highlighting. Some of the themes that show up on a regular basis in the book of Proverbs. Michael started us off by talking about the theme of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's why we put that sermon first in the series. Uh, Holly talked about the importance of words and their power. Uh, both for good and for ill. Michael then, and during the feast, talked about uh, the themes of peace, joy, and hope. Last week, he highlighted the fact that God calls us into community and how important that is, that we're not called to walk this life of faith on our own. 
We're called to do it together. And there's great value and strength in that. So this morning, I'm going to focus on the topic of the heart. So let's get right to the heart of the matter. We can begin with this question. Why is the heart so important? Well, the heart is important, certainly physiologically, right? Medical science tells us it's that four-chambered muscle that sits on the left side of our, of our chest. Uh, it pumps oxygenated blood from our lungs all the way through our body, and it brings that deoxygenated blood back to the lungs so that it can get filtered uh, there. Your heart beats about 100,000 times a day, which means that your heart beats over 35 million times each year. You've got about six quarts, as an adult, about six quarts of blood in your body. That blood makes the full circle three times per minute. It travels about 12,000 miles which, with each circuit, which means that's like your blood leaves New York and it goes to Los Angeles, and then it goes back to New York, and then it goes back to Los Angeles, and then it goes back to New York. It's a long way. Your heart is an amazing muscle. When you are sleeping, this is, this, I take great comfort in this. This is how I get my exercise. When you are sleeping, your heart works twice as hard as your leg muscles when you're in a full sprint. That's why I look so fit. So the heart is an amazing thing. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. So it is important physiologically, but the heart is also important culturally. Every culture is different, but in our culture, it's very important. When you're texting somebody on your smartphone and you, and you type in the word love, what happens? You get a little heart emoji that pops up, right? Now, it may not be anatomically correct, but that's really, that's the symbol in our culture of the heart. You can think of it, if you want to raise it up a, a level since we're in Davidson, you can think of it as a modern-day Egyptian hieroglyph, right? So when you see that, you know that we're talking about the heart. It is the official, that symbol is the official symbol of February 14th. What's February 14th? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, very good, very good. I didn't, I, I wasn't going to ask a woman because all the women know that, but I, I said, good job, good job, you did that great. Um, the heart is also, in our culture, it's a favorite subject of songwriters. So I'm going to give you just a real quick quiz, and we're going to find out how good you are at the songs that were written in the 70s and 80s. And I know some of them are going, uh, 18, 19, which one of those? These are all 19, 1970s. I'm going to give you the name of the artist, and then I want you to call out the name of the song. It's just like Jeopardy. All the songs have heart in the title. Are you ready? Bonnie Tyler. Total Eclipse of the Heart. There you go. Total Eclipse. That's a great one. Stevie Nicks and Tom Petty. Stop dragging my heart around. Right? Okay. This is an easy one. This is, this is a drop kick me Jesus through the goalpost of life one. Billy Ray Cyrus. Achy, breaky heart. Yeah, yeah. The first service got that too. Now, I, I kind of know what kind of music you guys listen to. That's the other thing we learned from this. All right, here's one. This came out when I was in high school. How about the Bee Gees? Well, 
How do you mend a broken heart? That's exactly right. How do you mend a broken heart? Well, the heart's important physiologically, it's important culturally, but since we're in church, I thought we might talk about why the heart is important biblically. Biblically. So, the Bible speaks a great deal about the heart. It's mentioned 750 times. 10% of those are found in the book of Proverbs. So, it would be easy for us, I think, when we come across the word heart in the Bible to get confused. We might think that, well, maybe it's talking about the muscle. Probably not. Maybe it's really talking about the seed of our emotions, you know, our, our, our love. How do, we, how do we love one another? But that's really not the case either. And so I was trying to figure out how to introduce what the heart really means biblically. And I came across a, one of my favorite video clips of all time. It's from a classic movie, and maybe this will help. You keep using that word. I, don't, I do not think you think it means what you think it means. And so when we come across the word heart in the scriptures, it's not talking about the heart as a muscle. It's not talking about the heart simply as our seat of emotions. When the Bible talks about the heart, it is talking about something much more than these. Now, there are two words that are primarily used uh, in, the, in the Bible for heart. In the New Testament, it's the word cardia. That's the Greek word, cardia, from which we get cardiologist, uh, cardiac, uh, the dreaded cardio, you know, when you have to exercise a lot in the cardio. In the Old Testament, it's a different word. It's a Hebrew word. It's the word lev, lev, from which we get no English words. Uh, no English words come from that. But lev has a has a distinct meaning. It's not just the seat of our emotions. It's the very center of our being. It includes things like how we think. It includes our will. It includes our disposition. It includes our character, our mind. It's the very center of our life. And so when Solomon uses the word heart in the book of Proverbs, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about who we really are at the core of our being. Now, the story of the human heart in the Bible doesn't begin on a very high note. Uh, we find it first in Genesis chapter 6. But before we get to Genesis chapter 6, if you'll remember that um, in, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve decided to kind of go their own way. Uh, they, they had some advice from God. They, they considered that. Uh, they had some advice from someplace else, and they decided that they would simply follow that advice. And that goes against one of the most famous Proverbs. We've mentioned this several times. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lead not on your own understanding, and all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. So that's in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, after they have deviated from what God wanted, we get the first murder. So right away, things don't go well. One brother takes the life of another. 
And we get these words in Genesis chapter 6. This is the first time that the heart is mentioned in the Bible. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a sad story. But maybe it gets better. So let's fast forward about 1,500 years and hear how King David talks about the heart in Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. And there is no one who does good. Still not a great story. So we'll fast forward another thousand years after that. And the prophet Jeremiah describes God's people this way. This people has a stubborn and a rebellious heart. It's not getting much better. So let's fast forward another, five, another 700 years and, and hear what Jesus has to say. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Are we getting cheery yet? Are you starting to see a pattern? 2,000 years after Jesus makes that statement, we're sitting in this gym on metal chairs. And we're here because we want to learn, we want to grow, and we want to change. We know the condition of our hearts, and we have grown tired of our own way, going our own way, and we really do want our stubborn and our rebellious hearts to change. Now, most of us, including myself, have tried to change our hearts with varied and, if we are honest, very limited success. Despite our genuine desire, determination to change, long-lasting change has eluded us. Trying hard to not let our mind wander into sinful thoughts has proven impossible in our own strength. Because being self-centered is just hard to shake. It's hard to shake. So the answer to Barry Gibbs' question, how can you mend a broken heart, is you can't. You can't. I can't. And not to burst your bubble, but if time were the thing that would heal a broken heart, you would think that 5,000 years ought to be enough time. But here we are. Most of the book of Proverbs was written by the son of King David. David was the second king. Uh, his son Solomon became the third king of Israel. David is described as a man of valor and a man of war. But unlike his father, Solomon chose to follow God's wisdom rather than his own strength. Here's how the Bible describes Solomon, the writer of most of the Proverbs. It says, The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Can you imagine? Everybody wanted to be in this guy's presence so that he could share God's wisdom that God had put in his heart. And so I was wondering, 
How would you like it if God put some of His wisdom in your heart? Wouldn't that be nice? Are you ready? Here it is. Proverbs 23, 26, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in this verse. My child, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. God says, my child, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. The presupposition behind that statement is that our heart is not where it's supposed to be. Our heart is not with God. And I think the little history of the Bible, uh, the Bible's mention of the heart kind of reiterates that. Our heart is not with God. It seems like our heart wanders as much as our minds. But God has put within each individual, regardless of time or culture, he has put within each individual an instinct which tells us that we have to give our heart, we have to commit our heart to something or someone outside of ourselves in order for us to feel complete. That's resident in every human being. So the question is, to what do we give our heart? Your heart can be given to a lot of different things. It can be given, for instance, to a, to a person, to a friend, to a soulmate, to a significant other, to a spouse, to our children. We can give our heart to a lot of different people. But it's really important that you understand the order. The order is always God first, our spouse, if we're married, second, and our children, third. If you get that out of order, it will cost you. Sometimes our heart can be given to a place, a place that kind of holds our heart. Uh, Tony Bennett lost his heart one time. Anybody remember where Tony Bennett lost his heart? Hmm? San Francisco, that's right. Tony Bennett left his heart in San Francisco. So there are places that we, can, that we can give our heart to. We can also give our heart to our career. In, in our culture, this is, this is fairly common. I love my work. But you have to understand the order. The order is our heart first goes to God, then to our family, and then to our career. And if you get that out of order, it will cost you. Sometimes our heart is given to a thing. We love things and we use people. But God says we have to love people, God being the first person. We have to love people and use things. And if you get that order wrong, it will cost you. Wherever we give our heart is going to determine not only what we're passionate about, it's going to determine what our priorities are, and it's going to determine our behavior, how we act. 
That is why the heart is so important. And it's why the scriptures talk about the heart so much. It's also why Solomon recorded for us the wisdom of God that had been placed in his heart when he said, when God says, give me your heart. So three ways to understand that statement. First, we can understand, we can hear that as a command. God is our creator. He has every right to tell us what to do. So it can come as a command from God. God's commands are always for our good. God knows that in order for our heart to be healed, it's got to be given to him. We can't give it to anything else and, and find what we need in life. Notice also that there are no qualifiers on this. He simply says, give me your heart. In other words, he doesn't say, give me part of your heart or give me most of your heart. He doesn't say, hey, give me the parts of your heart that you think I'm going to be pleased with. God does want those, but God wants our whole heart, which means those parts of our life, those parts of the center of our life, which we suspect may not be perfectly pleasing to God. Why does God want us to give that part of ourselves to him? It's because only he can heal it. Only he can redeem it. Only he can forgive it. So we need to stop holding back. If we give our heart to God half-heartedly, we are only going to rob ourselves of all of the joy and the peace and the wisdom and the blessings that come from our heart being back where it's supposed to be. So God commands us, give me your heart. We can also understand that phrase as a request. Give me your heart. Here's the thing. God is not going to take your heart from you. God is not going to steal your heart. It's a request. Give me your heart. The devil is the one who steals, kills, and destroys. But God is not going to forcibly take your heart. He's asking you to give your heart to him. When the devil comes, he destroys our heart's capacity for peace and joy and love. In the end, God is the only one who can protect your heart. He is the only one who can heal your heart. He is the only one who can strengthen your heart. He is the only one who can enlarge your heart. Give me your heart. It's a command, it's a request, but it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to put your heart back where it belongs, back with its maker. Those of you who, who, who have raised children and uh, in, 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 in have any military background, we've all told our kids, look, there is a place for everything, what? And everything should be in its place. If you get it out from there, you put it back there. That's what God is telling us. There's a place for our heart, and we need to put it back where it belongs. We need to give our heart to God. This is not a new thought. This is not a new idea. 
Back in 400, St. Augustine was a bishop in the church. He was a bishop in a, in a town called Hippo. And here's what Augustine wrote. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. God invites you to rest. Jesus put it this way. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, if your heart is restless today, give your heart to God and God will give you rest. Now there's a second half to verse 36, so we're going to move on to that. The second half of verse 36 says, let your eyes observe my ways. Now it would be really easy for us to read that and hear that and say, oh, that's a second command. He's telling us to do do something in addition to giving our hearts to God. But that's not what this text means at all. Here's where the seminary courses in Hebrew pay off. So we have uh, Gray with us who just finished seminary. We've got a couple of other people who are in seminary. And uh, I'm doing this uh, only because I want them to know that there are a lot of things that you learn in seminary that you should forget. Uh, but your he Hebrew grammar is not one of them. So the word that is translated observe here is the word ratzah. And it is in the imperfect tense. Now, imperfect sounds impressive. Wait till you hear what the tense's name is in Hebrew. It's yiktol. It's in the yiktol tense, which means it's imperfect. What does it mean that it's imperfect? It means that it's, it's, it's not complete yet. So that verb tense often talks about, it indicates something that will occur in the future. It indicates an expectation. It indicates a possibility. So when you give your heart to God, what he is saying is, it's going to be possible for you to see and observe God's ways. That's pretty amazing. It is not a second command, rather it is a consequence of giving your heart to God. Let your eyes observe God's ways. Can you imagine what it would be like to be pleased with the things that please God? To observe His ways. Imagine allowing God to reconcile, recreate, and reform your heart back into its original condition, back into that Genesis 2 condition. That's what God intends. Imagine your heart back in alignment, in agreement with God, aligning your will with God's will, and not just in theory, but in practice. God wants your heart, and through your heart, conformity to his will. 
Giving your heart to God will allow you to see God's ways. It means seeing ourselves and seeing others and seeing the world the way God sees them. The way God sees them. So what would life be like if we saw ourselves and others the way God sees us? What would it be like? What if we saw ourselves as broken-hearted people whose heart had wandered away from its home, having given our hearts to anything and everything except God in our effort to feel whole again? What if that's really how we saw ourselves? Well, that's how God sees us. What if we saw ourselves as broken-hearted people who cannot see our own need for forgiveness and grace, but instead we try to heal ourselves or hide from God because our hearts are restless and tired? What if we saw ourselves as broken-hearted people who view ourselves as superior to others or as inferior to others? When God sees us all created in his image, the same. What if we saw ourselves as broken-hearted people who have to no avail tried everything to change and heal our selfish hearts, to come to the place where we could forgive rather than holding grudges, to experience joy instead of despair, as I was working on this, the thought ran through my mind, I bet you that some of the men in the congregation are going to be going, man, my wife really needs to hear this. Because, I mean, women, they're emotional. Well, this is not about emotions. This is not about feelings. This is about having your heart where it belongs, where it can be at peace unconflicted, undivided, and at rest. So I'm going to close with a little word about Presbyterians. Some of you don't know where I'm Presbyterian. That's okay. Presbyterians are not really known for being warm-hearted people. As a matter of fact, oftentimes Presbyterians are referred to as the, the frozen chosen. We're, we tend to be uh, rational uh, and, and not, uh, not, uh, not driven by emotion. Now, the Methodists, on the other hand, the Methodists are the emotional people, right? John Wesley, when he was in a Bible study and, and, and the teacher was reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. And I believed that my sins, even mine, had been forgiven. That's a great feeling. That's an important feeling to come to that place in our life where we realize that the gospel is true. And it's not just true for others, it's true for me as well. Now, Calvin was a French attorney. So you would think he would be thinking rational. And sometimes he was mean as a snake. John Calvin was not perfect, neither was John Wesley. 
These guys are not perfect. But Calvin was rational. He loved to think things through. And some people say Calvin didn't have a heart. But that's not true at all. Back in his day, in order for a communication, a written communication, to be verified as coming from the sender who appeared to sign it, they would drip some wax on the envelope and they would stamp it with a seal. And that seal, everybody had their own seal. It was individual. It was unique. It was like their, their signature. I want to show you what John Calvin's seal looks like. Do you see that? It's a hand extended with his heart in it. And around that seal it says, My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. I bet he'd read Proverbs 23, 36. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you uh, a minute to ponder some questions. These are questions that should stir up a conversation between you and God. Where is your heart this morning? Who has your heart? Is it a person other than God? Is it a place? A career? A thing? Is your heart at peace? Unconflicted? Undivided? and at rest. I want you to listen one more time to God's wisdom. Because God is commanding, asking, and inviting you with these words. My child, give me your heart and let your eyes Observe my ways. If you haven't done that before, wholeheartedly, maybe this is the moment, this is the time when you can say, my heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.